The following is a presentation of Gallery Church Downtown, part of a family of neighborhood churches seeking to display God's greatness to the world. For more information, please visit gcbdowntown.com. Good morning, everyone. Okay, we're in Isaiah 52, starting at verse 7. How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the messenger who brings good news. The good news of peace and salvation. The news that the God of Israel reigns. The watchmen shout and sing with joy. For before their very eyes they see the Lord returning to Jerusalem. But the ruins of Jerusalem break into joyful song. For the Lord has comforted his people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord has demonstrated his holy power before the eyes of all nations. And all the ends of the earth will see the victory of our God. Get out. Get out and leave your captivity where everything you touch is unclean. Get out of there and purify yourselves. You who carry home the sacred objects of the Lord. You will not leave in a hurry running for for your lives. For the Lord will go ahead of you. Yes, the God of Israel will, will protect you from behind. God bless the reading of his word. Well, this morning we are continuing. Um, if you've been with us over the last couple of Sundays, we're in, a, we're in a series kind of starting our base in 1 Corinthians 15, where it says that Jesus came for the forgiveness of sins according to the scriptures. So we're looking back what are those scriptures and what does that mean according to the scriptures? So we're looking back at the Old Testament to see what Jesus is and who, who he was meant to be. And if you noticed on the screen, there were quite a few verses. And we should note that we were actually handed those verses. And so we got to wade through all of them in preparation for this sermon. And I really felt like the, that this was like connecting the dots. So remember growing up how you had like the dots all over the picture and they were numbered and you had to like figure out, okay, one to two, and all of a sudden the picture would emerge. I really feel like this is today's teaching where we're going to take bits of history and bits of symbolism, those are the dots, right, and try to kind of patch them together so that a picture will emerge, but that picture is still going to look like, you know, just the outline. And so really filling it in with the color and the form and the beauty of the picture will require much more deeper study on your own, um, but at least we'll get a taste. And I think we're doing this, too, because we want to demonstrate that this is one story. This is God's story. And I think as Gentiles, we often focus on like Jewish history or think of Jewish history, rather, as like their history. But keep in mind, we're grafted in, and so their history has become our history. And so for us to fully see this story, we have to go back and understand what they understood, things that really don't come readily available to us because, well, we didn't grow up with this history. Um, So again, we're connecting these dots, we're trying to get a fuller picture, and we want to see where does this history and this symbolism fit with Jesus and the significance of him dying at Passover. Yeah, whenever I look back and see, um, I mean, th- we look at a Bible, so we have everything in front of us, but when, when we're thinking about the passage of time that this is taking place, my first reaction when I read it is always to think, like, wow, God is such a creative God, that before time began that he thought of this story, of this redemption. But it's not just that he's a creative God, that he's using all this symbolism and using all these um, 
uh, these time frames and these scriptures to bring it to us. But I think, especially going through this teaching, he's doing it for a reason to help us understand what his kingdom is on earth. And he's doing it in a way that we can understand. So after Jesus died and resurrected, the early Christians, especially when you read in Acts, it seems like um, they really grasped what the power of the Holy Spirit was as they thought through, okay, what was that that we just lived through with Jesus and as they waited for the Holy Spirit to come. And it seemed like they almost had this like, ah, moment. Like, we get it. We're, we're running with it. And so we, we want that same ah moment. We get it. We get who Jesus is. And let's run with him. And so that's why we're going to go back through these scriptures as they did. So today we're going to look specifically at why Jesus died during the Passover. What's the significance of Jesus and Passover? So we're going to go back to the first exodus or the, in, um, from Egypt in the book of Exodus. And then we're going we're gonna to look at that through the lens of Isaiah 52 that Mary read. Then we're going to look in Mark uh, leading up to Jesus' death. And then we're going to actually look at his Last Supper with his disciples. So the first Passover, right, this is in Exodus, specifically Exodus 12. And recall the Israelites had been slaves in Egypt for over 400 years. And then God brought Moses to lead them out of slavery to the Promised Land. And so for Moses to do that, he had to confront Pharaoh, the ruler at the time. And he had to say, all right, if you don't let my people go, you're going to have ruin be brought upon you. And this ruin is going to come in the form of a plague. And so many plagues happened. Water turned to blood. Locusts came. Frogs. So all of these things would have been times where I think God was actually merciful in saying, look, Pharaoh, I'm giving you a chance over and over again to let my people go. And every time Pharaoh said, no. So finally, last straw, God says, this last plague, I'm actually going to kill every firstborn son in the land. So what did Pharaoh do? Well, he didn't say yes. So in order to protect the Israelites, God said, okay, take an unblemished lamb, sacrifice it, take the blood of the lamb, which really represents life, put that over your doorpost. I'm going to send an angel of death, God's angel of death. He's going to hover throughout the community, and when he sees that sign, he's going to pass over, hence the name, and that the son that's in that home will not die. So what the Jewish people had to do was not only kill the lamb, mark the doorpost, but then they had to be prepared to leave because Pharaoh had a history of changing his mind. And so they were instructed to pick up their things, eat the lamb quickly, and go. And so let me read um, just straight from the verse so you, so you see this. So this is starting uh, chapter 12, verse 11. In this manner you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgment. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. 
And if you keep reading, that's exactly what happened, right? Um, all the firstborn sons in Egypt died, even Pharaoh's firstborn son. But he passed over the houses that had the blood of the lamb on them. And then the Jews celebrated and still celebrate today um, to remember that God rescued them and brought them into this place of freedom. And interestingly, when you go back and you read the confrontation of Moses and Pharaoh, Moses' argument was, let my people go so they can be free to worship God. This was the emphasis, to worship God. So then, after the firstborn sons died, then Pharaoh said, go, worship your God, leave. So they left, and they went quickly, and they packed all their things, and they had that, all right, we're going, we're going to do it. They didn't know they were going to be in the desert for so long, um, but that's not the point. Um, and then you see, over, so then they left, and God brought them eventually to the promised land, even though it took a long time. But then we see as we look through the Old Testament, and as Ellis taught a couple weeks ago about the different exiles that they had to go through, um, and even as Ellis explained, some big, some small, but if you remember back in... Uh, gosh, that was months ago, when we went through Hebrews and we talked about the covenants. And God's covenant with Moses when he gave them the Ten Commandments was, if you follow me, then I will protect you. And so they went through a series, the Israelites, of disobeying God. And then God would allow them to be overtaken by the um, surrounding nations, and they would go into exile. And then they would repent, and then God would bring them freedom. He would bring them out. He would restore them. And then they would disobey again, and then they would go into exile. So this was a, a back-and-forth thing. And the Jews would have connected this, that the exile was a result of sin, that the weight of their sin and their disobedience led to them being um, taken by these other countries, and that it was the repentance and the forgiveness of God that brought them back to him. So the Jews in Jesus' day, they would have known that, and they would have connected uh, God's restoration and forgiveness um, of their sins um, with, this, with this covenant. And so when we go back and we think of the, and again, the First Corinthians passage, forgiveness of sins according to the scripture, it's not only an individual forgiveness of sins, but this corporate renewal and this corporate forgiveness and bringing into freedom. So when the Jewish people would have heard Isaiah, and again, we're looking at verse 52, they would have had all these things in mind. They would have had in mind the Passover and how they celebrated every year. They would have had in mind all the times that they were either exiled or in captivity. And that they would know Isaiah as a prophet was speaking about the future as well. So with that, we notice a few amazing things in, in verse 52 um, that they would have saw. I mean, starting in verse 7, how beautiful are the feet of him who brings good news. So imagine, this is a, a, the image of a messenger coming from battle. So imagine you're back at the city, perhaps within its walls. The men are out there fighting, and you're just waiting. When that messenger comes on the horizon, what's in his hand? Is this good news or is this bad news? Have we even defeated or won? And here we see that, of course, the messenger says, the battle is won. You're free. Um, your freedom has come. And that this would have meant like their literal release from the exile from Babylon, but also a way of prophesying that you know when their Messiah comes, there will be a final release, mm -hmm. uh, a literal and permanent release. Mm -hmm. So the Jews hold on to this truth, um, that the Messiah is coming, that the Messiah will fight their battles, 
um, that he will announce a permanent freedom from slavery, from sin, and as Emily mentioned, the freedom to worship God. So it was verse 7. If we look at verse 12, uh, just as much. Um, For you shall not go out in haste, and you shall not go in flight, for the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. So recall, when the Israelites left during the Passover time, they had to go quickly. Now to me, that seems like, well, they have their freedom, but do they, right? They're still going in fear. And I, think, I don't think they have that freedom from fear, and I think that's what's so important about what Jesus brings, or what these images bring. And remember, God's presence came uh, in, uh, when they left uh, Egypt, came as a cloud to cover them, to protect them from the Egyptians when they crossed the Red Sea, and then later on they came as a cloud to protect them from the hot sun in the desert. Mm-hmm. They came as a cloud of, or God came as a cloud of protection um, or rather, a fire by night uh, to lead them. So Isaiah is recalling God's presence with them in the past to connect them what the Messiah will bring in the future. And so the Jews would understand that connection, and that's what we want us to understand as well. This freedom from oppression, from slavery, again, freedom to worship God, that there's no longer fear, and that God's presence is with them, and God's presence will be permanently with us. That's right. And that's pretty, that's pretty amazing. I mean... I just, I just think, you know, we're, we're studying and we're getting in these, we're reading through the scriptures at home and together and we're talking and we're getting so excited and then we have like, you know, 20 or 30 minutes to talk about it and when we look at your faces sometimes, we're like, no, but this is really exciting, but go home and study it and read it. So write these scriptures down and go home and then get really excited and talk to each other about it because it is really exciting when you have more than 30 minutes. Okay, but... So we've seen uh, the Exodus and um, Isaiah, who's, who's, Isaiah is connecting the past and then looking to the forward, but now we're looking forward at Jesus. And so we're going to come to um, when he was about to celebrate the Passover. We're going to look in the book of Mark. In Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 12. This is just days before Jesus' death. And again, Jesus is connecting the Passover here. So starting here in verse 12. The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. He's with his disciples at this point. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. And when he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. And then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. And when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. Okay, if you can, turn to Mark 11, if you have your phone or Bible. And while you're doing that, I will tell you, I work for an organization called World Relief. It's both an international missions and international development organization. And a lot of the work that we do is write curricula. And we write curricula for adults. 
And we actually write training manuals so that people that train on this curricula can do a good job, right? And so we get into a lot of adult learning principles, of which we abuse every Sunday morning by just doing all the talking ourselves. But we at least try to allow for a little bit of discovery, which is one of the principles, and we're going to do that this morning. So we're going to break up into twos and threes or, or fours, preferably not ones. <laughs> and the question is, and we had this question ourselves in preparing for the sermon, so we've suffered, if that's the right word. We agonized over it. So what are the connections between the fig tree, the temple, and Jesus' death at Passover? Okay, everyone. So Kim just noted that, you know, if we were really doing a teaching ahead of a whiteboard and we'd solicit responses... And we'd all nod and say, good answer, whether or not it was good, to, to actually facilitate more speaking. But let's see, if, uh, let's see how I do, actually. <laughs> so, okay, this specific fig tree had leaves, even though it was out of season. And so if a fig tree has leaves, it should have buds, and those buds should turn into figs. But what use is this fig tree if it has leaves but no figs? The temple was supposed to be a place to meet with God, where heaven and earth touched. This is the place to worship. And the priests were supposed to facilitate that meeting, bringing people together for forgiveness and restoration with God. That's the the holiness of this temple and of that role. But they weren't. In fact, they had done the opposite. They had really actually kind of enslaved the people. Sound familiar? With rigid rules with financial transactions, and they did so for their own gain. Much like in uh, Egypt when they were slaves, I think here, even with this particular order or covenant, they're being enslaved. So Jesus' interaction with the money changers and the priests is almost reminiscent of like Moses coming against Pharaoh, demanding that the Israelites be free to worship. So Jesus cursed the fig tree because it was not doing what it was meant to do. It had the outward appearance of doing what it was supposed to do, but it didn't have the fruit. And he was angry at the money changers and the priests at the temple because they weren't doing what they were meant to do. They had the outward appearance, the robes, the building, but they did not have the fruit. The emphasis here is that the old system is not working. This temple and priest system is not working. So why even have it? I mean, well, if Jesus came on the scene at the very beginning, we wouldn't have got it. We have to go through the the one that doesn't work to understand why the one that does work is so wonderful and so worth it. So there had to be a new way. And Jesus was doing this during Passover specifically so that the Jews would see the connection between how Jesus was going to bring them out of slavery how he was going to bring them out of captivity and into a permanent freedom to worship God. Now, this is, this is an exciting moment. This is, this is pivotal, right? So Jesus is building up, and Jesus knows what he's doing. He's doing this very intentionally. He knows that he's bringing in the kingdom of God. This is his job and his task, and it's almost there, and he knows that. 
And so you're, we're looking at a lot of history in one Sunday, but now we're at this really exciting point. And so now we're going to jump in and look at his Last Supper with his disciples. So we're going to start in Luke chapter 22, verses 14 through 20, starting in verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table, and he said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. In celebrating the Passover with his disciples, he is, he's remembering with them what God has done. But his words are shifting the focus forward, much like Isaiah did, celebrating the past, but seeing what's coming. And he tells them, first of his future suffering, he's going to be suffering like the lamb, that it's his body and blood given for them, that spotless Passover lamb that was required for the Lord to pass over, for his grace to come. He's going to take their sins like that sacrificial lamb. And the forgiveness of sins, remember, is not just the individual sin, but this corporate renewal. This is... The forgiveness of sins is what ushers in the freedom. The forgiveness of sins is the central part, that with that gone, that's where the freedom comes to worship God. He's making a new covenant with them, a covenant of grace and forgiveness. And there's no more fear. There's no one chasing them. There's no death to be afraid of. There's no, we don't have to be, they don't have to be afraid of are they achieving enough? Are they doing enough? Are they, are they um, yeah, following certain rules or regulations? Um, are they liked? Are they respected? It's just Jesus. Yeah, do they and have to doubt no their fear. leaders? That's right. They don't have to doubt anymore. It's just mm-hmm. Jesus. Mm-hmm. That's a big deal, right, <laughs> for us when we live in that. And there's no more exile. There's not going to be any more separation from God. There's Mm -hmm. not going to be any more. And twice in this passage, he mentions the kingdom of God. And Brandon and I went really back and forth a lot about this. What is the kingdom of God? What is Jesus saying? Mm -hmm. That he's bringing the kingdom of God. And he makes it sound very immediate. That when he comes and when he dies, the kingdom of God is here. It's not something that they're waiting for. It's something that is present and here and now. And yeah, right. And when we see, I mean, going back to just the beginning, when we see the early church in Acts look back over what happened, they get that. They get that this is the presence of God and this is his kingdom now. But there's still questions like, like what is this? What is this kingdom of God? And I, I'm going to read a quote from N.T. Wright. So we've been reading this book by N.T. Wright called The Day the Revolution Began. And I recommend it. It's not easy. Um, it's not easy reading, but I like his perspective. And he says this. Hmm? Oh, sorry. I said, yeah, it's N.T. Wright. <laughs> um, he says, 
It was only in hindsight that they, the Jews, came to recognize that the central element in Passover was the personal and glorious presence of Israel's God and that they had all unknowingly been witnessing this very thing. In other words, the kingdom of God, God's presence, was Jesus. It was Jesus. And then you start thinking, well, who was Jesus? And you start going back through and seeing the healings that he was doing, forgiving people, and then they were healed. And the power and the compassion with what he lived, and that is the kingdom of God. That was Jesus walking with them. That's so wonderful. I think after Jesus' death and resurrection, I wonder if they made all these connections. I mean, if you think about a kingdom, it hardly looks like you're reigning on a throne when you're getting pushed up, crucified on a cross. And those connections might not have been very apparent. Mm -hmm. But we get to sit here and kind of look back through the Old Testament and see all these signposts that pointed exactly to this person, Jesus. So I think as they thought back through this time with Jesus, they realized that the kingdom of God, the heaven meets earth, was in Jesus, and that it changed the way they lived. It changed the way we lived. Mm -hmm. And they grasped that it was not only for them, but again, it was for us. I mean, we're grafted in as Gentiles into this Jewish story. Mm -hmm. So hopefully we can see the connections here. I mean, at the beginning I said we're trying to connect the dots, and we did cover a lot of verses. And while we could have gone deeper in each one of these, I really think that would have taken away from the point that there are so many signposts in the Old Testament. I mean, if you think Isaiah 52 is full, look at Isaiah 53. It just keeps going. Um, It's really quite amazing. But just to kind of recap a little bit, I mean, one is that Jesus is the new and final Passover lamb. Like the one from Exodus that was sacrificed so that we are permanently forgiven of our sins. And that through his blood, again, a symbol of life, we can now have life, but to the full. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that Jesus is both the warrior in the battle, defeating Satan for us, defeating death for us. And he's also the messenger coming and ushering in, saying, it's here, the kingdom is here. And Jesus is the new high priest. So we don't have to worry about any earthly corrupt priests. We can always look to him, and he's going to be loving. He's going to, he bears fruit, and we see that fruit. And he reconciles us to God, that we don't have to go to a temple, but that we just close our eyes, get on our knees, and say, come, Lord. Or as we did this morning, all those songs were about keeping Jesus at the center, worshiping him, um, because he is our high priest. And he is on the throne um, after that cross. And that Jesus has brought a new kind of freedom. We're living in a day where there's no exile or nothing can keep us from the love of God. That that's where we're standing and that's the truth of it. That the Messiah was coming and came and that God's kingdom is here on earth. And I love when we went through Ephesians, um, this verse in Ephesians 1, it says that Jesus came to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth are united together in Jesus, and we're living in that now. Mm-hmm. So we're going to actually stop. We're going to have communion. And I just some things to, to think through. Where There's going to be some worship playing. And to, just to think through, one, the forgiveness of our sins and the weight of that forgiveness of sins. And if there is something waiting on you this morning, waiting you down <laughs> this morning, um, come to the Lord 
and come because there is freedom. Mm -hmm. And there is no freedom like that of forgiveness, um, of a light heart. And if you need to confess your sins um, on your own or with someone, grab someone and do that before you come to communion because you will feel free. Um, And the second thing, just to, to pray and ask God, God, what is your kingdom here? And what is my reaction? Like the Jews had their reaction to the kingdom of God. What is my reaction? So as we come to the, as the worship team plays, and as we come to the table, um, we encourage we encourage people to come together, mm-hmm. and um, that's for if you've made a commitment to the Lord, and you are um, saying that Jesus, you are the one who forgave my sins, and you are my um, you are my access to God the Father. We come together so that we can remind each other of of who Jesus is in each of our lives and His kingdom come. So the worship team, you can come on up. And if you need prayer, um, there will be a few of us standing up if you want to pray together. I'll just pray before we start worship. Lord, thank you for your son. Thank you for your freedom. Thank you that you have forgiven us um, once and for all and that there's nothing that would separate us from you. Thank you that you did it in a way that we could understand where you used these pictures and used thousands of years um, to show your forgiveness and your mercy over us. Amen. Amen.